This evening, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3. Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Henry, just make sure the audio is working. Training some new tech guys. <laughs> Ecclesiastes chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, A time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it, so that people fear before him that which is already has been. That which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, We ask even now that by your word you might instruct us not only how to live, but how we are to think about how we are to live and how our lives relate in that most intricate and mysterious of ways to your sovereign rule over all things. Grant to us the humility to receive from you that great wisdom that comes from above and so make us a people that seek after your glory and the coming of your kingdom, we pray in your name. Amen. In Luther's voluminous works and the collection of those in volume 15, page 49, he writes, as he's commenting On the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's really a a combination of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, those books going well together, he writes, All human works and efforts have a certain and definite time of acting, of beginning, and of ending beyond human control. 
Thus, this is spoken in opposition to free will. Remember, he writes a lot against Erasmus, who was a proponent of free will. Luther continues, It is not up to us to prescribe the time, the manner, or the effect of the things that are to be done. And so it is obvious that here our strivings and efforts are unreliable. Everything comes and goes at the time that God has appointed. From this, he draws the conclusion, that is the, uh, Proverb, uh, Solomon, the writer of Proverbs, that it is useless for men to be tormented by their strivings and that they do not accomplish anything, even though they were to burst, unless the proper time and the hour appointed by God has come. Luther is saying this is God's world and we're living in it. And this is a very difficult lesson for moderns. It is difficult for moderns for two reasons. The rise of secular humanism and the lie that we are masters of our own fate. When did this really begin? And when did things really change? The arrogance of a corporate conviction and packed between the secular humanists that in some fashion we are authors of our own destiny. Just saying it kind of makes me want to throw up a little bit in my mouth, honestly. But it's everywhere. It's woven into every Disney movie today. Make your own destiny. Well, how do we do this? How are we to assure the fulfillment of the satisfaction of all of our longings? Well, I have one recommendation for you. Here it is. Don't have children. (laughs) Well, that certainly makes it harder, doesn't it? Because you begin to sacrifice two things predominantly. Time, early three. Money, sanity. Try to start a business. Try to plant a church. Try try to drive a a, a late model American-made vehicle. And you will soon realize the futility of, I am in charge of my own destiny. We call wrecks accidents, don't we? You may have been the one that caused the accident, but to the one you hit, well, they didn't plan on it. Are they masters of their own fate? No, this is God's world, and we're living in it. And we can either buck against this pervasive and inescapable reality, or we can receive with gratitude and faithfulness the one who is over all things. And so, when we look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1, chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, what we are seeing is Solomon prescribing for us an inescapable reality, and how we are to continue to think about our lives in that reality and how we are to live. Just tell me what to do. Tell me how to live in this world that God has made and rules over. Two points. Sovereignty expressed, verses 1 through 8, and sovereignty received. Verses 9 through 15. Let's look at this first one, sovereignty expressed. Now, as we look at these times and seasons, growing up in a baby boomer home, 
listening to the likes of Gordon Lightfoot and John Denver and the mamas and the papas, I remember there is a season. Turn, turn. And if you're expecting your theology to be good from the kind of band that would be invited to Woodstock, you're looking in the wrong place. This song is not an adequate or good interpretation of what is going on in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. You need to remember this and learn this. Just because some band reads their Bible and there's something poetic in it they think will fit well in a song, you ought not to entrust to them doctrine. Now, what, what are they teaching us? What are we to learn from this trap? When the birds sang it. And it's a beautiful song. Here's what they meant. Time. By the way, thank you for the new clock. I'm going to use it as an illustration. I noticed that as I'm in the pulpit, and I've seen my own children turn around and look at the clock. In fact, last Sunday, one of my children in Sunday school says, where's the clock? Which meant what? I'm ready to be done now. (laughs) And I see the hand moving, and it goes around. And around and around and around. What the birds are saying, the band, is that time is like this ever-marching stream of natural reality. And you just need to get with the program. Don't be the nail that sticks up. Just receive fate. And there are all of these things. And though someone may die, it won't be long before another is Born. We're talking about a kind of emotional stroking that is a kind of pagan, emotional, just giving into that's life. That's life. Just go with the flow, man. Just go with the flow. K Sarah, Sarah. Remember that one? A similar theology. That's life. What will be, will be. Well, how is that helpful? How is that helpful? How is it helpful when you've lost a loved one for someone to say, well, time heals all wounds? For whom? For whom does time heal all wounds? For those without an emotional stake, there is... There is no help in simply taking a text like this and saying, what Solomon is doing here is he's just saying, life is full of all kinds of things. Life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to (laughs) get. Neither is it about the propriety of just a list of the various events of human life. Just take it in stride. These things are going to happen. Oftentimes, parents, you tell your children, death is part of life. And they look at you and go, why? Maybe it's the dog. Maybe it's a friend. Why? And neither of those approaches, a sort of fatalistic approach or just a sort of stoic approach, are helpful at all to us. And in fact, that is not what Solomon is doing. He's not just listing a sort of uh, things that come in their season. No, what he is talking about is that the times and seasons of human life belong to Christ. They are his. And they are instruments that he wields in order to show us 
that he is the master of time, and that we live life under the sun. Remember that phrase, under the sun, under the sun, over and over? All is vanity, a mist and a vapor. It comes and it goes, it lasts but for a minute, life under the sun. And whether you are striving to seek pleasure, or you're using wisdom, or work, or money, or power as leverage to sort of escape the canopy of creatureliness and sinfulness, Solomon says, I've been to the top of the canopy and there's no piercing the veil. There's no way to get through. You're here and you're stuck on earth. There's no way out. But there is one who does not live on this earth, who has made himself known to earth dwellers like ourselves, and he provides for us a means of labor and delight and living that can count and speak into eternity. And so how are we to live then in not a cycle of time and seasons, because they're not cyclical in one sense, it, here they appear almost at random. Now they are joined, there are couplets, and we find those in two all the way to eight. But in our own lives, they seem to appear in random, in random unless it's celebrity deaths, and they always happen in what? Threes, right? You've heard this sort of thing. They always happen in threes. I don't know what that means. People are superstitious. These times and seasons belong to the Creator. We cannot repel or oppose such providence. And so we see these times born to die, to plant, to pluck up. There is always a sort of positive or a negative or something that is less pleasant and something that is more pleasant. But all of these things belong not to men or to some impersonal force, but they are God's. Every single moment belongs to God, and as they belong to God, he uses them to build and establish and grow his kingdom and to train and sanctify his people. Now, we live among a people, and in an age that possess what might best be described as a neurotic obsession with control. We want it, and we want it now. And not only do we want it now, we want it for the rest of our lives. We don't want to have to work for it. We want it to come quickly, and we want it to come on our terms Control over things that we have no control over. Climate control. You have this in your house? It's a myth. It's a joke. I mean, you can turn the heat up and you can turn the air down, but are you really controlling the climate? In order to escape gravity, what must you do? Well, you don't violate gravity. You live within the rules of gravity. You must what? Strap a big booster to yourself and make it propel you, and you act against, not equally, or you just hover. Hover boots would be pretty cool. That would be amazing. 
but you strap a rocket booster to your, well, not to your back, that would be insane. You get inside a ship that has a rocket booster, or you get inside a plane that creates a force that is um, greater than that of gravity, but you still live in a world governed by the laws of physics. Time itself is a constraint, is it not? It's the one constraint that we cannot escape that everyone has equal value of. That is, this, we all have the same amount of wealth when it comes to time. And we can't escape it. Now, certainly men have always sought to control the very thing that Solomon says here in verses 1 through 8, you cannot control. And where is that first expression of control? When Eve, having heard the promise of the serpent, that you shall what? Be like God, and that God was holding back from them something, and in order to get the thing that God was holding just out of their reach, it was necessary that they grasp for it in a way that God had not prescribed. And what happened? They gained knowledge. And in that knowledge, they understood exactly who they were as creatures, but under rebellion. And so what does that make us? What kind of people? Well, Solomon will talk about that in a moment. It makes us a kind of people that have eternity in our hearts, but a frustration due to our sinfulness that we do not wish to play by the rules that God has established that we cannot escape from because we are creatures. And so, though you may seek for absolute control over everything, and you do, and you will try, whether it is your children or your career or your bank account, it seems that the harder you hold and the tighter your grasp, the more it just slips through your fingers. Why? Because you don't get to say, this is the way it is, and then that is the way it is, do you? You can stomp your foot, you can scream, you can cry, you can whine, but it doesn't change a thing. There is no promise in Scripture for absolute control. There is none. And so we do not get to establish the truth as creatures We get to live in the world as God has made it. We must receive the truth as he has given it in nature and especially in his word. So what can we do? If we cannot allot the seasons and the times, if we are not sovereign, what can we do? We can humble ourselves before God, as Paul said in Romans 9, and say, you're the potter, I'm the clay. Have at it. Make of me what you will. And as Calvin would say in his golden book of the true Christian life, what God often does is he shapes those whom he loves, is he uses suffering and pain. And there is a very good reason for that. (laughs) Pain and suffering and humility are wonderful teachers of those who are prideful and hard and stubborn of heart. So we are to receive God's providence with a willingness to be taught. And we delight in all things, receiving all things with thanksgiving and confidence, because we know 
that what God has ordained is good. And this list, obviously, is not exhaustive. It is representative. And so it falls to the Lord to ordain. It falls to us to receive. And so Luther's quote continues, and this is how it ends. So the power of God comprehends all things in definite hours so that they cannot be hindered by anyone. You keep calendars? How many of you keep your calendars to the hour? That's crazy. That's neurotic. It's common. In this world, Spencer Grigg looked up like, uh, are you crazy? <laughs> of course I do. I have all these overlapping events so that the light blue becomes a really dark blue right there at a certain time of day. And all of these things are overlapping. And we look at that calendar. I look at my calendar tomorrow and I'm thinking, I don't know how I'm going to get it all done. Never in God's sovereign history of his orchestrating the events of men does he say, whew, this day is going to be tough. I hope I can get it all together. Even speaking that way feels blasphemous. It feels uncomfortable, doesn't it? Because you have an understanding of God that says, whoa. No, that is not how God operates. God sits in heaven as the transcendent being of all things, or that rules over all things, but he is also Psalm 113, intimately involved in the affairs of men, such that the scriptures say that even when a sparrow falls, he is ever-present, that he knows every hair on your head. Some for you, it's an easy job. Some of you, it's a more challenging task to know the number. But he knows it all. There is nothing that slips out from underneath the sovereign reign of God. Now, for the unbeliever, this knowledge is real and it is terrifying. And it's terrifying for two reasons. They have knowledge of God because they do not worship him as God. They are not friends of God, and they sense this. And they know his wrath and condemnation, Romans chapter 1, and they seek at all times to escape that knowledge by erecting for themselves a tower into which they can go to hide. But guess where that tower is built? In God's world. Such that even Van Til, Cornelius Van Til, this is an OPC name drop. If you don't know who Van Til is, look him up. It's a worthy look up. He said an unbeliever who uses the very language that God has given to men just to talk to one another is like a child who climbs into her father's lap in order to slap him in the face. Every unbeliever lives in this world and they sense the the presence, the gravitational pull, the authority of a divine being, and they hate it. But the rightful response is to do what? Understand that this is in fact good. Because if God is not the one who is sovereign, who is? Who is it? Well, it's definitely not you. It would be the most powerful men among us. And what can be said about the most powerful men among us? Who are they? I mean, you know them by name. They're everywhere. 
I wouldn't trust them with my dog. Not a one of them. They are all wretches. And they are so disconnected from a common life, they wouldn't know what to do with Salisbury steak. You know what I mean? They have no affection for the weak or for the poor, but there is one who sits upon the throne of heaven who looks down upon the sons of men and he loves them. He rules not with a tyrannical fist, but with an open hand of mercy and compassion. And so, secondly, what does this sovereignty look like when it is received? Well, he continues, what gain has the worker from his toil? Well, what gain has he? What is the gain that God has? This is the contrast. Now to see that, we look at verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. When was the last time you did something that went on forever? Never. Never ever. Only God can work for something. that There's a Dr. Seuss book in here waiting to happen with the evers and the forevers and the nevers. And it ought to remind us of this absolutely inescapable reality that what God does lasts forever. What you do lasts until your kids eat it all. Until all the money you earn that week is spent before the next week comes. (laughs) Constantly. Our labors are frustrated, our toiling, our business under the sun by those things that cannot touch the labors of God. We're here and he is here. Now when I say here, I don't mean that he is not with us. I've established that fact. You need to know that. And that even as God works in our world, the things that he works in this world under the sun do endure forever. But they are the works of a sovereign God. Ours are not. Ours are not. I have seen, verse 10, the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Now, yesterday, I was out in the woods with the boys, and we were clearing this area in our woods Because there is nothing like a wood that has no thorns and bushes. It's just tall, beautiful trees rising up out of the ground. A beautiful forest, groomed. And in order to do this, every thorn, every thistle, every every bush, every... Listen, three months ago, it was covered in poison ivy. And in order to get it to stay down, this is what Monsanto did. They created a chemical that gives you cancer when you spray it in the ground. But it gets rid of your leaves, doesn't it? And you say, I've done it. I never have to weed again. Have you ever tried to spray poison ivy with Roundup? It laughs. It just laughs. And so you've got to use a greater poison. But then it just grows somewhere else. Now, I can do two things. I can be out there in the woods clearing down brush with my kids, and I can say, I'm going to have to do this again next winter. And it's true. (laughs) Or I can say, I love it. Guys, this looks so good. Now let's go get our discs. Let's set up the basket and let's go throw some discs into the basket. Because now we can throw it without wading through a sea of poison ivy. 
I can either despise the work because I know I have to do it again, because I can't get over the fact of its impermanence, or I can enjoy it in its impermanence, in an impermanent way. And that's okay. Solomon is saying this. If you give to God the things that are God's, you learn to live in a world delighting in the things that are yours. Drink the lemonade after a hard day of labor and enjoy every drop. You may say, but I didn't get that much lemonade. Enjoy what you get. Or as parents say, you get what you get and you don't pitch a fit. Why do parents say things like that? Because if you're drinking the lemonade all the while thinking, this is the only one I get, you know what you've done by the end of that glass? You've wasted the whole experience. It's like when your kids are small and there are those moments of great frustration and you think, I just wish they were a little bit older. And then they get older and you think, man, I wish they could be younger again. Or you waste your singleness. Or you waste your years in marriage. Or you waste that time in work. Because you're always thinking, I just wish I had more. I wish there was more to life. Well, you know what Solomon says? There isn't. This is what you get. And if you are constantly seeking a kind of control and authority and power that only rightly belong to God, you will be utterly and completely miserable. And that is why he says that God has put into our hearts eternity. Verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So God is teaching us two lessons at one time. The first is that we have a desire, a yearning, a drive to understand all of life. We want to we know it. We want to categorize it and classify it and put it in a little globe and look at it and say, I get it. But also we are limited no matter what we do, whatever we learn, however much we achieve to escape this limitation. And we feel that deeply in our bones. And it frustrates us, doesn't it? We want to conquer, but there's always another horizon. We want to know the beginning of all things. We want to know the end of all things. And the great corruption of secular man today, do you know what it is? It is a broken cosmology. That is, man now attributes to blind natural forces what God only can do, and that is to create us. And do you know what happens when you get creation wrong? Do you know what happens when you get the first book of Revelation wrong? You get the last book of Revelation wrong. And you don't know what you're for if you don't know who you're from. And Solomon is right here teaching us our place. And so what do we do? To take joy in your limitation. And to give to God the things that are God's. Is there anything sweeter 
then we're sitting around the table and there is peace. And only one conversation going on at one time. Parents, you know what I'm talking about. And you're all talking about something of substance, not a video game, not a toy, something about life, something that matters, something in which each of you, whether you're young or old, are contributing some kind of insight. So I guess maybe it could be a video game or a toy. But it isn't selfish. Everyone in their own way is looking at life and they're saying, I love this. And you're learning and you're teaching one another to delight in the simple things of life. Always, though, with an eye to the worship of the true king of heaven. So really, Christian submission submits in two things, and this is what I want to end with. Christian submission begins with the acknowledgement that there is one who is in heaven. He is an eternal and everlasting God, and he rules over all things. And what takes the terrifying teeth out of that is the acknowledgement that that God who is sovereign over all things sent his son into the world under times and seasons in order to die for our sins that we might be redeemed and reconciled to him and know him. Not know his entire plan, but to be convinced of the goodness and the charity and the mercy of his plan. So that we can say, whate'er my God ordains is right. And then we continue, his wonders to perform. Wondrous things are in store for us, but we will not see them if we try to be the instruments of our own times and seasons. Now, you can plan, but God owns your plans. And so we ought not to disparage the will of God because we do not like it, but to surrender to it because it is good. And in all things, we give thanks. We cannot be happy. We cannot be satisfied. We cannot capably handle the responsibility that alone belongs to the Lord. So stop. Just stop. And receive his providence in time. How do you gear up for that? You surrender to God's plan. Remember we confessed in the Shorter Catechism just a few minutes ago. Maybe several minutes ago. What do the, the scriptures principally teach? What man is to believe concerning God, verses 1 through 8, and what duty God requires of man? To surrender, to delight in his good gifts, and to honor him with our lives. Let's pray. Oh, Lord our God, we ask even now this evening,